Hello, welcome to the podcast at Chesper Baptist Church. Sorry we haven't recorded in a couple of weeks. We've been having some technical difficulties, but we're back. The message this past Sunday was entitled, Three Keys to Dealing with Doubt. Please enjoy. All right, if you have your places in Matthew chapter 11, if I could invite you to stand one last time as we read the scripture. We're going to read six verses, pray, and then sit back down. Matthew chapter 11, verse number 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, now when John while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The title of the message this morning is Three Keys to Removing Doubt. Three Keys to Removing Doubt. Let's pray. Your gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity once again to be in your house, to hold open a Bible, Lord, to read the Holy Scriptures and to let it bathe us and cleanse us and change our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd speak to us from the pages of the Word of God and may you reach inside of our hearts and change us, Lord. Thank you for all you've done for us. Be with the message this morning. In Jesus Christ's precious name I pray, amen. Maybe seated. A little more than a hundred years ago in the state of Pennsylvania was a very brilliant man by the name of Russell Carter. Russell Carter was a very brilliant young man. Russell Carter did very well. He excelled in high school. He was a very accomplished athlete in high school. He graduated and went to university. Eventually, Russell Carter would become a math teacher at a, a math teacher at a military uh, at a military academy. And get this: in his spare time, Russell Carter became a medical doctor. Just something he did on the side in his spare time. Needless, you know, um, it's think about what you do in your spare time. And this guy became a medical doctor. I organize stuff in my room. And so that's what, that's what he does. And he becomes a medical doctor. And uh, so he did this. So he's a very brilliant man. However, one day an illness struck the body of Russell Carter. And for several years of his life, he was bedridden. And even though he was very accomplished and very brilliant, and he also was a Christian, it was during this time Russell Carter fell into the the, the most despair and the most doubt and the most, it was the most fearful and doubtful time in Russell Carter's life. It was during this time that Russell Carter wrote these words. Standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. Russell Carter wrote those words in the deepest despair and discouragement he had ever experienced in his life. And when he wrote those words over a hundred years ago, little did he know that he would be describing the day and time in which we live. 
We live in a day and time when doubts and fears assail. You know, it's amazing what's happened to our country in the last few years. And am I talking about the lost? No, I'm not. Because lost people are going to act how lost people are going to act. I'm talking about people who claim to follow Christ. Those are the people I'm talking about. People that claim they know the Lord. It's amazing what these people have done in the last few years. We've come to a place in our time where the Bible says that men's hearts will fail them for fear. That is where we're at. People have hearts full of fear and people have hearts full of worry and people have hearts full of doubt and they go and watch the news night after night after night and it consumes their every thought. It works on their hearts. It works on their lives. Everything going on in the world. We live in a day when people are, we're saved people are full of doubts and full of fears and people look to Washington D.C. and Washington D.C. fails and people look to the state capitals and the state capitals fail one by one and we live in a time where sin is just out of control and what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right and righteousness is trampled in the streets and, and wickedness is exalted on the throne. That's the day and time in which we live. God's people are confused and God's people are full of doubt and God's people are full of fear and God's people are full of discouragement this morning. And you know, it's funny that we think we're the first ones to go through this. We experience this as Christians and we think, oh man, this has never happened before. It's never been like this before. No one's ever been through what we've been through. And then we come to a passage of scripture like Matthew chapter 11. You know, if this story would have taken place outside of the Bible and I would have read it, I would have said, there's no way this can happen. There's no way if this happened outside the Bible, I would say to myself, there's no way this could have happened. Because, I mean, Matthew chapter, if Matthew chapter 11 wasn't in the Bible, people wouldn't believe it. Now, I'll tell you, there are people in the Bible like Doubting Thomas. There are people in the Bible like Peter who doubt from time to time. But if you would have ever told me that a man like John the Baptist would doubt, I, I would have said to you, you had too much Pizza Hut before you went to bed last night. You need to lay off the pepperonis. Okay, you didn't get much sleep last night. If you'd have told me that, if it wasn't in the Bible, because we wouldn't think that such a story would be remotely possible. But then, so let's talk about John the Baptist. You know the story. The Bible says that his parents were, were well stricken in years and the angel of the Lord came to Zechariah while he was doing his priestly duties and the angel of the Lord said, you're going to have a son and, and we all know the story. His parents were well stricken in years. And the Bible tells us that this miracle baby came into the world. We read about him in the book of Malachi. He is the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. He would make the path straight. He was the one who would point people toward the Messiah. You know, John the Baptist, he was a... Uh, John the Baptist was some preacher. 
John the Baptist was some preacher. They didn't have to go out and get any fancy billboards for John the Baptist. They didn't have to go out and go to Madison Avenue and get the slick ad campaigns. They didn't have to go out and buy airtime for John the Baptist because, listen, the, the, John the Baptist didn't go to the crowds. The crowds came to John the Baptist. The crowds came to him. John the Baptist would go out in the wilderness of Judea and he would lift up his mighty voice and he would yell out, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was the one who would look at the religious crowd and would call them vipers. This man was bold. This man was courageous. This man was a powerful man of God. No, he didn't get his suits from Joseph A. Bank. and No, he didn't get his... He didn't go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse and eat the best steaks. He didn't do that. But the hand of God was on him. And John the Baptist didn't care who the crowd was. He did, and, and, and he didn't care if it was even the king of the land. Because what got him in trouble is he pointed the finger of conviction at the king the land and he told that man right in the you are not you should not be with that woman and he had the backbone and he had the courage to say the things that the compromising preachers wouldn't say it is not lawful for you to be with that woman king herod would have killed him but king herod was too scared he was too scared to kill because of the crowd. But there was somebody who was not scared, and that was that old Jezebel Herodas. So Herodas got that daughter to go dance in front of King Herod, and that daughter danced in front of a lustful king, and that lustful king said, I will give you half of all the kingdom. And what she said was, I want John the Baptist's head in a charger. So that's where we're at. That's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist, he's imprisoned near the River Jordan in a place called Fort Macarus, right by the Jordan River. John the Baptist knows that his hour is coming soon. John the Baptist knows that his time has almost come. And John the Baptist peers out those metal, those metal prison bars out the window up against the wall of the castle. And he looks out and he sees his disciples. And he yells out to his disciples, Go find Jesus. Go find Jesus of Nazareth. And ask him, is he the one that we should be looking for or not? Ask him, is he the one, is he the Messiah, or do we look for another? John the Baptist, John the Baptist is saying this? This is the John the Baptist that baptized? This is the John the Baptist that said, behold, here comes the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. He was the one who the Spirit of, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. He heard the voice come from heaven, and now he's saying, is this the Christ? Is this the one? Do we look for another? Can you imagine John coming to a place of such doubt? Can you imagine God, John coming to a place of such discouragement, coming to a place of such fear? And can you imagine fear failing the heart of that prophet to a place where he wondered if Christ was the one? If Jesus was the Christ, or do we look for another? In other words, John the Baptist 
was consumed with doubt. He was consumed with doubt. You know, we would be stunned if today in this church we knew how many people were consumed with doubt. We would be stunned if we knew in this church building this morning how many people were consumed with fear. I mean, I'm talking about people that grew up in church all their lives. I'm talking about the people who back in the day when they were growing up, they went to Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, training union, you name it, Awana. They went to the camps. They, they volunteer their time. They give their time to volunteer for the Lord to invite people to church. But when they get all along with just them and God, their hearts are full of doubt. And in Matthew chapter 11, we find John the Baptist in this state. But you know, John the Baptist, he's with some uh, pretty select company, isn't he? He's with some pretty select company in the Word of God. And man, we think back and we look at that man, Elijah. Elijah was a mighty man of God, what a bold servant of the Lord. And let me tell you something, if it was up to me and you, we, we would have just left Elijah on Mount Carmel. We'd have just left him on top of that mountain calling down fire from God, having a victory. That's where me and you would have left him, but not the God of the Bible. Because in the very next chapter, he's sitting under a juniper tree asking God to kill him. Because God, the, the God of the Bible, wants to show us that Elijah had light passions just like me and you. The next chapter after that, he's running as far south as he, as he can to run away from that problem called Jezebel. He runs all the way down to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. He goes all the way to the cave, probably the very cave where Moses was in the cleft of the rock. And it was at that place that God deals with him. What about David? Man, let me tell you something. If it was up to me and you, we'd have left David at Goliath. We'd have left David with that slingshot and that stone spinning around, hitting that giant in the forehead, cutting his head off with the sword. That's where we'd have left David. Maybe we would have left David dancing in the streets to people singing, David has kills of tens of thousands. That's where me and you would leave David, but not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible shows David down in a lonely cave, crying out, no man for my soul. What about the prophet Micah? Man, if it was up to you, we would, we would leave Micah preaching one of the mightiest messages in the Old Testament, saying that Judah is about ready to get plowed under. And we would listen to Micah exalt the passions and mercies of God as he tells us that he takes our sin and buries him in the depths of the sea. That's where me and you would leave Micah. But not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible shows us that he was discouraged to the point where he wishes he was dead. And now John the Baptist joins some of the mightiest preachers of God. He leans over the prison bars inside that castle and he calls out to his disciples, go find Jesus, go find Jesus of Nazareth and ask him, is he the one or do we look for another? Have I invested my life in the wrong one? 
Have I chosen the wrong path? Have I went down the wrong road? Have I wasted all this time giving all this time to Jesus? Have I wasted it? That is the place that John the Baptist has come to. And the disciples come to Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew eleven four, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. And Jesus said, I've got an answer for my man. I've got an answer for my, for my child that's full of fear. I've got an answer for my child that's full of doubt. Whatever fear fills your heart, we've got a Savior today that says, I've got an answer for you. I've got an answer to the one whose heart is full of fear. When doubts and fears assail, go, you want an answer? Go to the Bible. The answer's in the Word of God. And from Matthew chapter 11 this morning, from the story of John the Baptist in that prison, I want to give you a response to a man or woman in here today that is full of doubt and full of fear. I'm going to give you three responses from this passage this morning. Response number one. Jesus said, tell John the testimony of changed lives. Tell John the testimony of changed lives. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. Well, what, what, what might that be? Let's read the next verse. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He said, you just go right around and you go back to John and you tell John that, John, that Jesus is changing lives. You go tell John the Baptist that when Jesus comes inside of you, you become a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You go tell John the Baptist that you could fill the books with the blind people who could now see and the deaf who could now hear and the lepers who were cleansed and the lame that can now walk. You go tell John about those who was raised from the dead. You go tell John about the poor people who were preached to because Jesus is still in the business of changing lives today. He's still in the business of changing lives. And man, we could go all around the room this morning and people could stand up and people could give their testimony after testimony about great things that people have done. And we could go around the room today and talk about the sin that people were saved out and saved out. People where lives were changed. And we could go around this room this morning and talk about miracles that we've witnessed that would make you stop in your tracks. We could do that today. Let me tell you, he's still in the business of saving sinners. He's still in the business of rescuing drunkards, of rescuing drug addicts. He's still in the business of putting families back together, of healing the sick, cleansing the leopards, raising the dead. He's still in the business of changing lives. You go back and you tell John the stories. You go back and you tell John the testimonies. Jesus Christ is still in the business of doing mighty works. Arthur Luther was a preacher many years ago. He was an evangelist. He took a train to the mountains of Kentucky and he was preaching with a preacher by the name of O.E. Wilson. 
He was back in the mountains of Kentucky preaching when he got word that uh, his baby who lives back in Buffalo, New York was very ill and was on death's doorstep. He wanted to go there, but you can only, back then, you could only access those back mountains by train, and the train wasn't coming for a couple of days, and he felt absolutely stuck. So that night, he did the only thing he knew to do is he went into the, the tent where they had the revival. He sat at the piano, and he began to pray. While he was praying for his dear baby boy, he began to peck out a tune on the piano. Soon that tune began to develop and soon he put words to that tune and it became a song. And Arthur Luther, got, he, he thought of that song as an answer to prayer. He went to bed that night and when he woke up the next morning, he got news that his son had lived. His son had lived and had got through this, this health issue that he had had. But he, he still wrote the song and he published the song and the, song, the words of the song go like this. Earthly friends may prove untrue, doubts and fears assail. One still cares for you, Jesus never fails. Though the sky be dark and drear, fierce and strong the gale, just remember he is near and he will not fail. In life's dark and bitter hour, love will still prevail. Trust in lasting power. Jesus will not fail. Jesus never fails. Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. They asked him, why did you write it that way? Why did you say heaven and earth shall pass away? And he looked at them and said, because listen, if heaven and earth were to pass away today, Jesus never fails. And you can take that to the bank. You can take it to the bank this morning. Y'all go back to that man in prison. He's not only in a physical prison, he's in a spiritual prison. Just like a lot of us are in a spiritual prison today. You go back and tell that man that's full of doubt and full of fear, you go back and you tell him Jesus never fails. But in verse number 5, there's a second message. So John the Baptist is saying, go ask Jesus. Go, go see if he's the one. Do we look for another? They came, the, John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus. And Jesus said, go back and tell them the stories. Go back and tell them of all the miracles. Go back and tell them of all the, all, all, all the things that you've seen. But in verse 5, there's a, the second message. And if we don't pay attention to it, we'll miss it. And we can't afford to miss it. Three verse five. Well, actually, I'll tell you what he was. Number number one, he was go back and tell him I changed lives. Number two, he told John to go back to his Bible. Verse five: The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So not only is he telling John to look at the testimonies of the miracles, but he's also telling John, John, you need to go back to the Bible. In particular, he's telling John to go back to the book of Isaiah. He's going back to the book of Isaiah because the book of Isaiah talks about who the Messiah is going to be. He talks about, uh, who, about the Messiah and who he would be. You see, most people would think that Jesus is the Messiah because he performed miracles. That is wrong. 
Jesus is not the Son of God because he can perform miracles. Satan can perform miracles. Satan is the great imitator. Jesus is not the Son of God because he can perform miracles. Jesus is the Son of God because he fulfills the Word of God. He fulfills the Scripture. In Isaiah, there are four texts. Here they are. You can write them down if you want to. Isaiah 26, 19. 29, 18, 35, 5, 61, 1. And in these texts, God is telling Isaiah, look, I want you to write this down because in 700 years, I'm going to send my son and this is how people are going to know who he is. This is how people are going to know that he's my chosen son. So Isaiah says, when the son, when, so Isaiah says, when the Son of God comes, he's going to do some things. Number one, he's going to open the eyes of the blind. Number two, he's going to open the ears of the deaf. Number three, he's going to give legs to the lame. Number four, he's going to cleanse the lepers. Number five, he's going to raise the dead. And number six, the poor will have the gospel preached to them. You know, somebody that loves the Bible and somebody who doesn't know who the Messiah was, is or was going to be, they would look in the Bible, they would go to the book of Isaiah, and they would start writing out a checklist. He's got to meet all these requirements. So what's he going to do? He's going to open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, give legs to the lame, cleanse the leper, bring the dead back to life, preach to the poor. That's the checklist for the Messiah. It had to be six for six, y'all. Five out of six, it's not going to cut it. It had to be six for six. And so Jesus is saying, you turn around and you go tell John the Baptist, go tell him about the book of Isaiah. Tell him to go down the checklist. See how he's doing on the checklist. The blind? Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, let's, let's talk about the blind. Let's talk about the blind man in John 9. You know, nine times in the Gospels it tells us that Jesus healed the blind. But you know, John 9 is, is probably my favorite. John 9, why don't you go back and tell John the Baptist about the blind man from John 9 because the Pharisees asked Jesus, hey, who, who, who sinned that this man is blind, him or his parents? See, the Pharisees believed that the parent, if someone was born blind that their parents sinned, or, or they actually believed that the baby could sin in the mother's womb. And the baby could sin in the mother's womb and be born blind. So they asked, who sinned, him or his parents? Let me just say, don't ever give Jesus a multiple, a multiple uh, answer question. Don't ever give him multiple choice. Because you're going to give him A and B, and Jesus is going to come in there with a C. None of the above. Okay? Who did that in school? C, 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 A, 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 B, B, B. There was like a, you know, if you do that, then you pass the test. I don't know if that's probably not true. Don't do that. Don't do that. But um, so, so don't ever give Jesus a multiple choice question. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how Jesus did this. How Jesus healed this blind man. Because you weren't allowed to make clay on the Sabbath. So you know what Jesus did? He reached down and he made clay. And in doing that, he said, here's what I think about your rule book. 
and he made clay and he put it in their eye, in his eyes. And then you know what he said, you know what else? You know you say how you have to count your steps on the Sabbath and you can only walk 1,500 uh, 1500 steps? Why don't you go all the way down to the southwest corner to the Pool of Shalom, go wash and then walk back and tell me what number you're at. You see, that's what Jesus thought of the Pharisaical rule book. He threw it right back in their face. And that blind man came back and not only could he see physically, but in verse 38, he could see spiritually because he became redeemed and he was saved. And he looked at Jesus. He believed on Jesus and worshipped him. So Jesus says, yeah, go tell John the Baptist about the blind man in John 9. Check. All right? But what about the deaf? Well, Jesus had the privilege many times in his, through his ministry to come across the deaf. One time he put his fingers in the ears of a deaf man and healed him. Check. All right, well, what about giving legs to the lame? Well, let me tell you another story. I was in a house one day and the house was so packed up and it was standing room only and nobody could get in and nobody could get near the house. And there were these four friends and they were carrying this guy who couldn't walk and they, they went on top of the roof and they tore a hole in the roof and let Jesus down and Jesus said, get up and walk and he gave legs to the lame. So why don't you go tell John the Baptist about that? Check. We're four, for, we're four out of six. Is that good enough? No. Four out of six is not going to cut it. Okay? Raising the dead. What about, what about John chapter 11? What about Lazarus? When Jesus stepped out, he said, roll the, roll the stone away. And Jesus yelled out, Lazarus, come forth. You know, I'm glad he said Lazarus, because if he'd have just said come forth, everybody in the cemetery would have got up. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. And could you imagine how bummed out Lazarus was? I mean, Lazarus had been in glory for four days. I mean, he's been up there eating some good meals, getting some good rest, rubbing elbows with the saints in glory. And all of a sudden, the angel comes to Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come in this committee room for me and... Lazarus gets up and he thinks that's strange. He goes into the committee room and the angels are standing around staring at each other. It's like, okay, who's going to tell him? And then Lazarus is like, what's going on, guys? Just tell me. And one of the angels says, Lazarus, you got to go back. And you imagine how bummed out Lazarus was. Let me tell you something. We just had the funeral of Donald, uh, Brother Donald Lebo, a dear deacon of this church, and I just love that man to death. So many days we would sit and talk to him, and we had his funeral, and I was in there, and you know, I was thinking about this. If I had the opportunity to ask Brother Donald, Donald, do you want to come back? With a resounding, he would say, no, I don't want to come back. You leave me alone. I want to stay here. I don't want to come back. But why did Lazarus have to come back? Check. So we could check it off the list. So people would know that me and you and John the Baptist could check that off the list and we could know that he's the Messiah because he can raise the dead. Let me tell you something else. Jesus didn't go to the country club crowd. No, he didn't. He went to the poor. The rich people had to come to him. Nicodemus had to come to Jesus. 
And you could hear him now when he came to Jesus with his fancy words, Rabbi, we know thou art a prophet sent from God because no one can do these miracles except God be with him. And Jesus looked through the phoniness and said, Dude, you must be born again. And just threw Nicodemus for a loop. Jesus looked right through all that phoniness. And another thing that Jesus did is he went to all the podunk little cities out in the country. He'd go to these little cities. And even Jesus' brother said one day, Hey, why don't you go to Jerusalem where the big time prophets go? That's where you can get the most people. That's where you can get the most popularity and acclaim. Why don't you go to Jerusalem with all the big time prophets? And Jesus really didn't care about what the big time prophets did. He really didn't. He wasn't interested in that. Jesus wasn't interested in acting like a big time prophet. You know what Jesus was interested in? Check, 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 check. Go tell John the Baptist all the testimonies. But that's not going to get it done. Jesus isn't the Son of God because he performed miracles. Jesus is the Son of God because he fulfilled the Scripture right up until the day he rose from the grave. Tell John to get his checklist out. So what do you tell a person whose heart is full of worry, whose heart is full of fear, whose heart is full of doubt? What do you even tell somebody who might even question their salvation? What do you tell somebody? Well, you tell them the same thing Jesus told John the Baptist. You need to go get along with your Bible. You need to go get along with the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Why don't I have enough faith? Because you haven't got enough of the Word of God. Because that's how you get faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more we read the word, the more we memorize the word, the more we meditate on the word of God. You know what we start to do? Check, check, check. And that checklist it gets longer and longer because the word of God testifies to us that Jesus is who he claims to be. So what do you do when doubts and fears assail? Number one. There's a testimony of changed life. Number two, there's the power of the word of God. And number three, there's the offense of Christ. The disciples said, are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus said, go tell them the stories. Go tell them to read the book of Isaiah and get out his checklist. It'll tell them exactly who the Messiah is. And then the word of God says, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You know that wording is always problematic for people. Blessed is or blessed are. And people can take that the wrong way. So you go to the Beatitudes and it says, blessed is the poor in spirit. And some people take that as, oh, well, if I'm poor in spirit, then I'll be blessed. So I'll work for that so I can be blessed. Or blessed is the peacemaker. Or blessed are this or blessed are that. And they think, if I do these things, I do them for a blessing, I'll get blessing. And you're missing the point. You're absolutely missing the point. You don't do these things to receive a blessing. You do these things because you love him and the blessing just comes. 
You do it because you love Him, not because you're seeking a blessing. And as you're doing these things because you love Him, you wake up and look around one day and you think, oh, I'm blessed. He blessed me. Not because I was seeking a blessing, but because I love Him. See, there's a crowd out there called the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd. That's how they interpret those verses. Oh, if I do this, then I'll get blessed. If I do this, I'll get that nice Cadillac. If I do this, I'll get that nice three-bedroom home. I'll get all the nice things. But the Bible says don't do it to be blessed. Do it because you love him. And then one day you'll see how blessed you really are. Because let me tell you something. John the Baptist didn't feel blessed when he was in prison. John the Baptist didn't feel blessed when they asked for his head in a basket. And John the Baptist did not feel blessed as they put him on the chopping block. Jesus didn't say something good's going to happen to you. There was a a program, a a preacher many years ago, his, his program run on TBN or something, and I forget the name of it, but at the end of it, he'd say, something good's going to happen to you. That's what preachers like old Joel want you to think. Oh, man, something's good is going to happen to you. But Jesus said, if you're willing to be offended for my sake, then you're blessed. You see, being in prison is fine as long as Jesus is with you. Because it's better to be in prison with Jesus than to be free without Jesus. Do you understand that? It's okay if I'm in prison as long as Jesus is with me. If I'm free and I don't have Jesus, that's actually worse. See, location doesn't matter. And our health really doesn't matter. And our financial situation really doesn't matter because it's a whole lot better that we walk through those valleys with Jesus than if we weren't in those valleys without Jesus. The crowd was following Jesus. Man, Jesus had amassed a big crowd and they were following after Him. All the people were following Jesus because they wanted those free filet of fish sandwiches. And man, they, they wanted all the free meals and they wanted all the free stuff. And then one day Jesus stopped and he turned around and he preached the message on discipleship. And he looked at them and said, you have to hate your mom and dad for my sake. And people said, whoa. And they started backing off. People started filing out and people started leaving. And you know, Jesus didn't really mean to hate your mom and dad, but when you compare the love for your mom and dad for the love that you should have Christ, it it would look like hate. Jesus chose to use those words, but Jesus didn't stop there. That was a three-point message. So then he goes on to point number two, and he looks looks out, and, and he says, you have to count the cost. You have to bear your cross. It's gonna be hard. People steadily leaving. And then he gets down to the final point and says, Whosoever be of you, but forsaketh not all, cannot be my disciple. And when he got done preaching that message, there was only 12 left. And he looked at the 12 and said, Will you also leave me? 
And then he looked at up at the 12 and said, even one of you 12 is a devil. Nobody didn't want to stick around for the discipleship. Why? There's a price to pay. There's a price to pay for serving Christ. Isaac Watts was in England. And what they were doing in England is preachers could preach, but you had to preach state-approved messages. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Somebody see what's going on in Canada, some other places? Some subpoenas down in Texas we talked about a couple of years ago. But you see, the thing is, is that the preachers had to preach state-approved messages. And preachers like Isaac Watts was not preaching state-approved messages. They were preaching, thus saith the Lord, and they would get flogged in the street and beat and thrown into prison. But for some reason, Isaac Watts, that never happened to him. I don't know if he was just lucky or blessed or Isaac Watts didn't know what was going on, but all of his friends that were standing true were getting beat and thrown into prison and nothing ever really happened to Isaac Watts. So he wrote these words. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery bread beds of ease? while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. And there no foes for me to face, must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me unto God? Since I must fight, I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. I know John's heart is full of doubt. I know John's heart is full of, full of fear. But, you know, we can, you know, back in the day, people could hear John the Baptist preach out in the wilderness. He would preach out loud. And through the pages of Scripture, we can hear John the Baptist today yell out through the corridors of time, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But in that prison cell, the silence was deafening. And in the silence of that prison cell, the doubt and the fear was lingering. So Jesus said, tell him about the changed lives. Tell him to open his Bible and get his checklist out. And then tell him there's still a price to pay to serve the Savior. Let me tell you one last story. There was a dear lady who had dedicated most of her life to memorizing the Word of God. And she had memorized great, great portions of Scripture, and she loved the Word of God with all her life, but the last year of her life, her mind began to slip. And the portions of Scripture that she memorized got smaller and smaller and smaller until the last days of her life on a hospital bed, she was only left with one verse. I know... I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And man, if that's the only verse you got, that's a good verse to have. And she would repeat that verse over and over and over. But then the last few hours of her life, she lost even that. And the only thing she had left of it was this phrase, I have committed unto him 
And she would repeat that phrase over and over. I have committed unto him. I have committed unto him. I have committed unto him. And in the last few moments of her life, she lost even that. Right before she crossed over into glory, she was mouthing something and speaking real soft. And her family members thought she was asking for something. So they would lean, they leaned down to hear what she was saying. And what she was saying was him. Him, him, him. And for all the doubt and for all the problems and for all the uncertainties that me and you have in our life, the bottom line is is if all we have is him, it's enough. All right, if you have your places in Matthew chapter 11, if I could invite you to stand one last time as we read the scripture. We're going to read six verses, pray, and then sit back down. Matthew chapter 11, verse number 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, now when John while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The title of the message this morning is Three Keys to Removing Doubt. Three Keys to Removing Doubt. Let's pray. Your gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity once again to be in your house, to hold open a Bible, Lord, to read the Holy Scriptures and to let it bathe us and cleanse us and change our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd speak to us from the pages of the Word of God and may you reach inside of our hearts and change us, Lord. Thank you for all you've done for us. Be with the message this morning. In Jesus Christ's precious name I pray, amen. You may be seated. A little more than a hundred years ago in the state of Pennsylvania was a very brilliant man by the name of Russell Carter. Russell Carter was a very brilliant young man. Russell Carter did very well. He excelled in high school. He was a very accomplished athlete in high school. He graduated and went to university. Eventually, Russell Carter would become a math teacher at a, a math teacher at a military uh, at a military academy, and get this: in his spare time, Russell Carter became a medical doctor. Just something he did on the side in his spare time. Needless, you know, um, it's may think about what you do in your spare time. And this guy became a medical doctor. I organize stuff in my room. And so that's what, that's what he does, and he becomes a medical doctor. And uh, so he did this, so he's a very brilliant man. However, one day an illness struck the body of Russell Carter, and for several years of his life he was bedridden. And even though he was very accomplished and very brilliant, and he also was a Christian, it was during this time Russell Carter fell into the the, the most despair and the most doubt and the most, it was the most fearful and doubtful time in Russell Carter's life. It was during this time that Russell Carter 
wrote these words. Standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. Russell Carter wrote those words in the deepest despair and discouragement he had ever experienced in his life. And when he wrote those words over a hundred years ago, little did he know that he would be describing the day and time in which we live. We live in a day and time when doubts and fears assail. You know, it's amazing what's happened to our country in the last few years. And am I talking about the lost? No, I'm not. Because lost people are going to act how lost people are going to act. I'm talking about people who claim to follow Christ. Those are the people I'm talking about. People that claim they know the Lord. It's amazing what these people have done in the last few years. We've come to a place in our time where the Bible says that men's hearts will fail them for fear. That is where we're at. People have hearts full of fear and people have hearts full of worry and people have hearts full of doubt and they go and watch the news night after night after night and it consumes their every thought. It works on their hearts. It works on their lives. Everything going on in the world. We live in a day when people are, we're saved people are full of doubts and full of fears and people look to Washington D.C. and Washington D.C. fails and people look to the state capitals and the state capitals fail one by one and we live in a time where sin is just out of control and what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right and righteousness is trampled in the streets and, and wickedness is exalted on the throne. That's the day and time in which we live. God's people are confused and God's people are full of doubt and God's people are full of fear and God's people are full of discouragement this morning. And you know, it's funny that we think we're the first ones to go through this. We experience this as Christians and we think, oh man, this has never happened before. It's never been like this before. No one's ever been through what we've been through. And then we come to a passage of scripture like Matthew chapter 11. You know, if this story would have taken place outside of the Bible and I would have read it, I would have said there's no way this could happen. There's no way if this happened outside the Bible, I would say to myself, there's no way this could have happened. Because, I mean, Matthew chapter, if Matthew chapter 11 wasn't in the Bible, people wouldn't believe it. Now, I'll tell you, there are people in the Bible like Doubting Thomas. There are people in the Bible like Peter who doubt from time to time. But if you would have ever told me that a man like John the Baptist would doubt, I, I would have said to you, you had too much Pizza Hut before you went to bed last night. You need to lay off the pepperonis. Okay, you didn't get much sleep last night. If you'd have told me that, if it wasn't in the Bible, because we wouldn't think that such a story would be remotely possible. But then, so let's talk about John the Baptist. You know the story. The Bible says that his parents were, were well stricken in years and the angel of the Lord came to Zechariah while he was doing his priestly duties and the angel of the Lord said, you're going to have a son and, and we all know the story. His parents were well stricken in years. 
And the Bible tells us that this miracle baby came into the world. We read about him in the book of Malachi. He is the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. He would make the path straight. He was the one who would point people toward the Messiah. You know, John the Baptist, he was a... John the Baptist was some preacher. John the Baptist was some preacher. They didn't have to go out and get any fancy billboards for John the Baptist. They didn't have to go out and go to Madison Avenue and get the slick ad campaigns. They didn't have to go out and buy airtime for John the Baptist. Because listen, the, the, John the Baptist didn't go to the crowds. The crowds came to John the Baptist. The crowds came to him. John the Baptist would go out in the wilderness of Judea and he would lift up his mighty voice and he would yell out, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was the one who would look at the religious crowd and would call them vipers. This man was bold. This man was courageous. This man was a powerful man of God. No, he didn't get his suits from Joseph A. Bank. and No, he didn't get his... He didn't go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse and eat the best steaks. He didn't do that. But the hand of God was on him. And John the Baptist didn't care who the crowd was. He did, and, and, and he didn't care if it was even the king of the land. Because what got him in trouble is he pointed the finger of conviction at the king the land and he told that man right in the you are not you should not be with that woman and he had the backbone and he had the courage to say the things that the compromising preachers wouldn't say it is not lawful for you to be with that woman king herod would have killed him but king herod was too scared he was too scared to kill because of the crowd. But there was somebody who was not scared, and that was that old Jezebel Herodas. So Herodas got that daughter to go dance in front of King Herod, and that daughter danced in front of a lustful king, and that lustful king said, I will give you half of all the kingdom. And what she said was, I want John the Baptist's head in a charger. So that's where we're at. That's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist, he's imprisoned near the River Jordan in a place called Fort Macarus, right by the Jordan River. John the Baptist knows that his hour is coming soon. John the Baptist knows that his time has almost come. And John the Baptist peers out those metal, those metal prison bars out the window up against the wall of the castle. And he looks out and he sees his disciples. And he yells out to his disciples, Go find Jesus. Go find Jesus of Nazareth. And ask him, is he the one that we should be looking for or not? Ask him, is he the one, is he the Messiah, or do we look for another? John the Baptist, John the Baptist is saying this? This is the John the Baptist that baptized? This is the John the Baptist that said, behold, here comes the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. He was the one who the Spirit of, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. He heard the voice come from heaven, and now he's saying, is this the Christ? Is this the one? Do we look for another? Can you imagine John coming to a place of such doubt? 
Can you imagine God, John coming to a place of such discouragement, coming to a place of such fear? And can you imagine fear failing the heart of that prophet to a place where he wondered if Christ was the one, if Jesus was the Christ, or do we look for another? In other words, John the Baptist was consumed with doubt. He was consumed with doubt. You know, we would be stunned if today in this church we knew how many people were consumed with doubt. We would be stunned if we knew in this church building this morning how many people were consumed with fear. I mean, I'm talking about people that grew up in church all their lives. I'm talking about the people who back in the day when they were growing up, they went to Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, training union, you name it, Awana. They went to the camps. They, they volunteer their time. They give their time to volunteer for the Lord, to invite people to church. But when they get all along with just them and God... Their hearts are full of doubt. And in Matthew chapter 11, we find John the Baptist in this state. But you know, John the Baptist, he's with some uh, pretty select company, isn't he? He's with some pretty select company in the Word of God. And man, we think back and we look at that man, Elijah. Elijah was a mighty man of God, what a bold servant of the Lord. And let me tell you something, if it was up to me and you, we, we would have just left Elijah on Mount Carmel. We'd have just left him on top of that mountain calling down fire from God, having a victory. That's where me and you would have left him, but not the God of the Bible. Because in the very next chapter, he's sitting under a juniper tree asking God to kill him. Because God, the, the God of the Bible, wants to show us that Elijah had light passions just like me and you. The next chapter after that, he's running as far south as he, as he can to run away from that problem called Jezebel. He runs all the way down to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. He goes all the way to the cave, probably the very cave where Moses was in the cleft of the rock. And it was at that place that God deals with him what about David man let me tell you something if it was up to me and you we'd have left David at Goliath we'd have left David with that slingshot and that stone spinning around hitting that giant in the forehead cutting his head off with the sword that's where we'd have left David maybe we would have left David dancing in the streets to people singing David has kills of tens of thousands that's where me and you would leave David but not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible shows David down in a lonely cave, crying out, no man for my soul. What about the prophet Micah? Man, if it was up to you, we would, we would leave Micah preaching one of the mightiest messages in the Old Testament, saying that Judah is about ready to get plowed under. And we would listen to Micah exalt the passions and mercies of God as he tells us that he takes our sin and buries him in the depths of the sea. That's where me and you would leave Micah. But not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible shows us that he was discouraged to the point where he wishes he was dead. 
And now John the Baptist joins some of the mightiest preachers of God. He leans over the prison bars inside that castle and he calls out to his disciples, go find Jesus, go find Jesus of Nazareth and ask him, is he the one or do we look for another? Have I invested my life in the wrong one? Have I chosen the wrong path? Have I went down the wrong road? Have I wasted all this time giving all this time to Jesus? Have I wasted it? That is the place that John the Baptist has come to. And the disciples come to Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew eleven four, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. And Jesus said, I've got an answer for my man. I've got an answer for my, for my child that's full of fear. I've got an answer for my child that's full of doubt. Whatever fear fills your heart, we've got a Savior today that says, I've got an answer for you. I've got an answer to the one whose heart is full of fear. When doubts and fears assail, go, you want an answer? Go to the Bible. The answer's in the Word of God. And from Matthew chapter 11 this morning, from the story of John the Baptist in that prison, I want to give you a response to a man or woman in here today that is full of doubt and full of fear. I'm going to give you three responses from this passage this morning. Response number one. Jesus said, tell John the testimony of changed lives. Tell John the testimony of changed lives. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. Well, what, what, what might that be? Let's read the next verse. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He said, You just go right around and you go back to John and you tell John that, John, that Jesus is changing lives. You go tell John the Baptist that when Jesus comes inside of you, you become a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You go tell John the Baptist that you could fill the books with, with the blind people who could now see and the deaf who could now hear and the lepers who were cleansed and the lame that can now walk. You go tell John about those who was raised from the dead. You go tell John about the poor people who were preached to because Jesus is still in the business of changing lives today. He's still in the business of changing lives. And man, we could go all around the room this morning and people could stand up and people could give their testimony after testimony about great things that people have done. And we could go around the room today and talk about the sin that people were saved out and saved out. People where lives were changed. And we could go around this room this morning and talk about miracles that we've witnessed that would make you stop in your tracks. We could do that today. Let me tell you, he's still in the business of saving sinners. He's still in the business of rescuing drunkards, of rescuing drug addicts. He's still in the business of putting families back together, of healing the sick, cleansing the leopards, raising the dead. He's still in the business of changing lives. You go back and you tell John the stories. You go back and you tell John 
the testimonies. Jesus Christ is still in the business of doing mighty works. Arthur Luther was a preacher many years ago. He was an evangelist. He took a train to the mountains of Kentucky and he was preaching with a preacher by the name of O.E. Wilson. He was back in the mountains of Kentucky preaching when he got word that uh, his baby who lives back in Buffalo, New York was very ill and was on death's doorstep. He wanted to go there, but you could only, back then, you could only access those back mountains by train, and the train wasn't coming for a couple of days, and he felt absolutely stuck. So that night, he did the only thing he knew to do is he went into the, the tent where they had the revival. He sat at the piano, and he began to pray. While he was praying for his dear baby boy, he began to peck out a tune on the piano. Soon that tune began to develop and soon he put words to that tune and it became a song. And Arthur Luther, got, he, he thought of that song as an answer to prayer. He went to bed that night and when he woke up the next morning, he got news that his son had lived. His son had lived and had got through this, this health issue that he had had. But he, he still wrote the song and he published the song and the, song, the words of the song go like this. Earthly friends may prove untrue, doubts and fears assail. One still cares for you, Jesus never fails. Though the sky be dark and drear, fierce and strong the gale, just remember he is near and he will not fail. In life's dark and bitter hour, love will still prevail. Trust in lasting power. Jesus will not fail. Jesus never fails. Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. They asked him, why did you write it that way? Why did you say heaven and earth shall pass away? And he looked at them and said, because listen, if heaven and earth were to pass away today, Jesus never fails. And you can take that to the bank. You can take it to the bank this morning. Y'all go back to that man in prison. He's not only in a physical prison, he's in a spiritual prison. Just like a lot of us are in a spiritual prison today. You go back and tell that man that's full of doubt and full of fear, you go back and you tell him Jesus never fails. But in verse number 5, there's a second message. So John the Baptist is saying, go ask Jesus. Go, go see if he's the one. Do we look for another? They came, the, John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus. And Jesus said, go back and tell them the stories. Go back and tell them of all the miracles. Go back and tell them of all the, all, all, all the things that you've seen. But in verse 5, there's a, the second message. And if we don't pay attention to it, we'll miss it. And we can't afford to miss it. Three verse 5. Well, actually, I'll tell you what he was. Number, number one, he was go back and tell them I changed lives. Number two, he told John to go back to his Bible. Verse 5. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So not only is he telling John to look at the testimonies of the miracles, but he's also telling John, John, you need to go back to the Bible. In particular, he's telling John to go back to the book of Isaiah. 
He's going back to the book of Isaiah because the book of Isaiah talks about who the Messiah is going to be. He talks about, uh, who, about the Messiah and who he would be. You see, most people would think that Jesus is the Messiah because he performed miracles. That is wrong. Jesus is not the Son of God because he can perform miracles. Satan can perform miracles. Satan is the great imitator. Jesus is not the Son of God because he can perform miracles. Jesus is the Son of God because he fulfills the Word of God. He fulfills the Scripture. Isaiah, there are four texts. Here they are. You can write them down if you want to. Isaiah 26, 19, 29, 18, 35, 5, 61, 1. And in these texts, God is telling Isaiah, look, I want you to write this down because in 700 years, I'm going to send my son and this is how people are going to know who he is. This is how people are going to know that he's my chosen son. So Isaiah says, when the son, when, so Isaiah says, when the son of God comes, he's going to do some things. Number one, he's going to open the eyes of the blind. Number two, he's going to open the ears of the deaf. Number three, he's going to give legs to the lame. Number four, he's going to cleanse the lepers. Number five, he's going to raise the dead. And number six, the poor will have the gospel preached to them. You know, somebody that loves the Bible and somebody who wants to know who the Messiah was, is or was going to be, they would look in the Bible, they would go to the book of Isaiah, and they would start writing out a checklist. He's got to meet all these requirements. So what's he going to do? He's going to open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, give legs to the lame, cleanse the leper, bring the dead back to life, Preach to the poor. That's the checklist for the Messiah. It had to be six for six, y'all. Five out of six, it's not going to cut it. It had to be six for six. And so Jesus is saying, you turn around and you go tell John the Baptist, go tell him about the book of Isaiah. Tell him to go down the checklist. See how he's doing on the checklist. The blind... Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, let's, let's talk about the blind. Let's talk about the blind man in John 9. You know, nine times in the Gospels it tells us that Jesus healed the blind. But, you know, John 9 is, is probably my favorite. John 9, why don't you go back and tell John the Baptist about the blind man from John 9 because the Pharisees asked Jesus, Hey, who, who, who sinned that this man is blind, him or his parents? See, the Pharisees believed that the parent, if someone was born blind, that their parents sinned, or, or they actually believed that the baby could sin in the mother's womb. And the baby could sin in the mother's womb and be born blind. So they asked, who sinned, him or his parents? Let me just say, don't ever give Jesus a multiple, a multiple uh, answer question. Don't ever give him multiple choice because you're going to give him A and B and Jesus is going to come in there with a C. None of the above. Okay? Who did that in school? C, 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 A, 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 B, B, B. There was like a, you know, if you do that, then you pass the test. I don't know if that's probably not true. Don't do that. Don't do that. 
But um, so so don't ever give Jesus a multiple choice question. And so, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting how Jesus did this, how Jesus healed this blind man, because you weren't allowed to make clay on the Sabbath. So you know what Jesus did? He reached down and he made clay. And in doing that, he said, here's what I think about your rule book. And he made clay and he put it in their eyes, in his eyes. And then you know what he said? You know what else? You know you say how you have to count your steps on the Sabbath and you can only walk 1,500 uh, 1500 steps? Why don't you go all the way down to the southwest corner to the Pool of Shalom, go wash, and then walk back and tell me what number you're at. You see, that's what Jesus thought of the Pharisaical rule book. He threw it right back in their face. And that blind man came back, and not only could he see physically, but in verse 38, he could see spiritually because he became redeemed and he was saved. And he looked at Jesus. He believed on Jesus and worshipped him. So Jesus says, yeah, go tell John the Baptist about the blind man in John 9. Check. All right? What about the deaf? Well, Jesus had the privilege many times in his, through his ministry to come across the deaf. One time he put his fingers in the ears of a deaf man and healed him. Okay. All right, well, what about giving legs to the lame? Well, let me tell you another story. I was in a house one day, and the house was so packed up, and it was standing room only, and nobody could get in, and nobody could get near the house. And there were these four friends, and they were carrying this guy who couldn't walk, and they went on top of the roof, and they tore a hole in the roof and let Jesus down. And Jesus said, get up and walk, and he gave legs to the lame. So why don't you go tell John the Baptist about that? Check. We're four, for, we're four out of six. Is that good enough? No. Four out of six is not going to cut it. Okay? Raising the dead. What about, what about John chapter 11? What about Lazarus? When Jesus stepped out, he said, roll the, roll the stone away. And Jesus yelled out, Lazarus, come forth. You know, I'm glad he said Lazarus, because if he'd have just said come forth, everybody in the cemetery would have got up. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. And could you imagine how bummed out Lazarus was? I mean, Lazarus had been in glory for four days. I mean, he's been up there eating some good meals, getting some good rest, rubbing elbows with the saints in glory. And all of a sudden, the angel comes to Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come in this committee room for me and Lazarus gets up and he thinks that's strange. He goes into the committee room and the angels are standing around staring at each other. It's like, okay, who's going to tell him? And then Lazarus is like, what's going on, guys? Just tell me. And one of the angels says, Lazarus, you got to go back. Can you imagine how bummed out Lazarus was? Let me tell you something. We just had the funeral of Donald, uh, Brother Donald Lebo, a dear deacon of this church, and I just love that man to death. So many days we would sit and talk to him, and we had his funeral, and I was in there, and you know, I was thinking about this. If I had the opportunity to ask Brother Donald, Donald, do you want to come back? With a resounding, he would say, no, I don't want to come back. You leave me alone. I want to stay here. I don't want to come back. But why did Lazarus have to come back? Check. So we could check it off the list. 
so people would know that me and you and John the Baptist could check that off the list and we could know that he's the Messiah because he can raise the dead. Let me tell you something else. Jesus didn't go to the country club crowd. No, he didn't. He went to the poor. The rich people had to come to him. Nicodemus had to come to Jesus. And you could hear him now when he came to Jesus with his fancy words. Rabbi, we know thou art a prophet sent from God because no one can do these miracles except God be with him. And Jesus looked through the phoniness and said, Dude, you must be born again. And just threw Nicodemus for a loop. Jesus looked right through all that phoniness. And another thing that Jesus did is he went to all the podunk little cities out in the country. He'd go to these little cities. And even Jesus' brother said one day, Hey, why don't you go to Jerusalem where the big time prophets go? That's where you can get the most people. That's where you can get the most popularity and acclaim. Why don't you go to Jerusalem with all the big time prophets? And Jesus really didn't care about what the big time prophets did. He really didn't. He wasn't interested in that. Jesus wasn't interested in acting like a big-time prophet. You know what Jesus was interested in? Check, 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 check. Go tell John the Baptist all the testimonies. But that's not going to get it done. Jesus isn't the Son of God because he performed miracles. Jesus is the Son of God because He fulfilled the Scripture right up until the day He rose from the grave. Tell John to get his checklist out. So what do you tell a person whose heart is full of worry, whose heart is full of fear, whose heart is full of doubt? What do you even tell somebody who might even question their salvation? What do you tell somebody? Well... You tell them the same thing Jesus told John the Baptist. You need to go get along with your Bible. You need to go get along with the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Why don't I have enough faith? Because you haven't got enough for the Word of God. Because that's how you get faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The more we read the Word, the more we memorize the Word, the more we meditate on the Word of God. You know what we start to do? Check, check, check. And that checklist, it gets longer and longer because the Word of God testifies to us that Jesus is who He claims to be. So what do you do when doubts and fears assail? Number one, there's a testimony of changed lives. Number two, there's the power of the word of God. And number three, there's the offense of Christ. The disciples said, are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus said, go tell them the stories. Go tell them to read the book of Isaiah and get out his checklist. It'll tell them exactly who the Messiah is. And then the word of God says, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You know that wording is always problematic for people. Blessed is or blessed are. And people can take that the wrong way. 
See, you go to the Beatitudes and it says, blessed is the poor in spirit. And some people take that as, oh, well, if I'm poor in spirit, then I'll be blessed. So I'll work for that so I can be blessed. Or blessed is the peacemaker. Or blessed are this or blessed are that. And they think, if I do these things, I do them for a blessing, I'll get blessing. And you're missing the point. You're absolutely missing the point. You don't do these things to receive a blessing. You do these things because you love him and the blessing just comes. You do it because you love him, not because you're seeking a blessing. And as you're doing these things because you love him, you wake up and look around one day and you think, oh, I'm blessed. He blessed me. Not because I was seeking a blessing, but because I love him. See, there's a crowd out there called the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd. That's how they interpret those verses. Oh, if I do this, then I'll get blessed. If I do this, I'll get that nice Cadillac. If I do this, I'll get that nice three-bedroom home. I'll get all the nice things. But the Bible says don't do it to be blessed. Do it because you love him. And then one day you'll see how blessed you really are. Because let me tell you something. John the Baptist didn't feel blessed when he was in prison. John the Baptist didn't feel blessed when they asked for his head in a basket. And John the Baptist did not feel blessed as they put him on the chopping block. Jesus didn't say something good's going to happen to you. There was a, a program, a preacher many years ago, his, his program run on TBN or something, and I forget the name of it, but at the end of it, he'd say, something good's going to happen to you. That's what preachers like old Joel want you to think. Oh, man, something's good is going to happen to you. But Jesus said, if you're willing to be offended for my sake, then you're blessed. You see, being in prison is fine as long as Jesus is with you. Because it's better to be in prison with Jesus than to be free without Jesus. Do you understand that? It's okay if I'm in prison as long as Jesus is with me. If I'm free and I don't have Jesus, that's actually worse. See, location doesn't matter. And our health really doesn't matter. And our financial situation really doesn't matter because it's a whole lot better that we walk through those valleys with Jesus than if we weren't in those valleys without Jesus. The crowd was following Jesus. Man, Jesus had amassed a big crowd and they were following after him. All the people were following Jesus because they wanted those free filet of fish sandwiches. And that man, they, they wanted all the free meals and they wanted all the free stuff. And then one day Jesus stopped and he turned around and he preached the message on discipleship. And he looked at them and said, you have to hate your mom and dad for my sake. And people said, whoa. And they started backing off. People started filing out and people started leaving. And you know, Jesus didn't really mean to hate your mom and dad, but when you compare the love for your mom and dad for the love that you should have Christ, it, it would look like hate. Jesus chose to use those words. 
But Jesus didn't stop there. That was a three-point message. So then he goes on to point number two. And he looks and he looks out. And, and, and he says, you have to count the cost. You have to bear your cross. It's going to be hard. People steadily leaving. And then he gets down to the final point and says, Whosoever be of you, but forsaketh not all, cannot be my disciple. And when he got done preaching that message, there was only 12 left. And he looked at the 12 and said, Will you also leave me? And then he looked at up at the 12 and said, Even one of you 12 is a devil. Nobody didn't want to stick around for the discipleship. Why? There's a price to pay. There's a price to pay for serving Christ. Isaac Watts was in England. And what they were doing in England is preachers could preach, but you had to preach state-approved messages. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Somebody see what's going on in Canada, some other places? Some subpoenas down in Texas we talked about a couple of years ago. But you see, the thing is, is that the preachers had to preach state-approved messages. And preachers like Isaac Watts was not preaching state-approved messages. They were preaching, thus saith the Lord, and they would get flogged in the street and beat and thrown into prison. But for some reason, Isaac Watts, that never happened to him. I don't know if he was just lucky or blessed or Isaac Watts didn't know what was going on, but all of his friends that were standing true were getting beat and thrown into prison and nothing ever really happened to Isaac Watts. So he wrote these words. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery bread beds of ease? while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. And there no foes for me to face, must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me unto God? Since I must fight, I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. I know John's heart is full of doubt. I know John's heart is full of, full of fear. But, you know, we can, you know, back in the day, people could hear John the Baptist preach out in the wilderness. He would preach out loud. And through the pages of Scripture, we can hear John the Baptist today yell out through the corridors of time, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But in that prison cell, the silence was deafening. And in the silence of that prison cell, the doubt and the fear was lingering. So Jesus said, tell him about the changed lives. Tell him to open his Bible and get his checklist out. And then tell him there's still a price to pay to serve the Savior. Let me tell you one last story. There was a dear lady who had dedicated most of her life to memorizing the Word of God. And she had memorized great, great portions of Scripture, and she loved the Word of God with all her life, but the last year of her life, her mind began to slip. And the portions of Scripture that she memorized got smaller and smaller and smaller 
until the last days of her life on a hospital bed, she was only left with one verse. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And man, if that's the only verse you got, that's a good verse to have. And she would repeat that verse over and over and over. But then the last few hours of her life, she lost even that. And the only thing she had left of it was this phrase, I have committed unto him. And she would repeat that phrase over and over, I have committed unto him, I have committed unto him, I have committed unto him. And in the last few moments of her life, she lost even that. Right before she crossed over into glory, she was mouthing something and speaking real soft and her family members thought she was asking for something so they would lean, they leaned down to hear what she was saying and what she was saying was him, 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 him. And for all the doubt and for all the problems and for all the uncertainties that me and you have in our life, the bottom line is that if all we have is him, it's enough. 